Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events <laughs> of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is a podcast segment of the show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for today's 384th show is Dr. Julia Courtright, Associate Professor of History at Iowa State University, who will be talking with us about her book, The Prairie Fire, Great Plains History. Our history buffer today's show is Rick Sweet. And uh, Rick, since you haven't changed being a prairie guy, you get the question. Well, I think I am now a prairie guy because you dissed my desert uh, reference. But that's okay. That's okay. You're no longer in the Julie, valley, but it doesn't count. <laughs> Julie, uh, you were, you mentioned in the broadcast. Uh, you touched briefly on the in the broadcast version about uh, uh, the need for more burns because we're watching what's happened in Colorado and California, which part of that disaster is because they have not had controlled burns. Uh, could you talk? Talk to us about the environmental impact, uh, good or bad, uh, about burning a controlled burn as opposed to not a controlled burn in the history of the Great Plains fires. Sure, uh, prairie fire has been used, uh, you know, by native peoples and then um, by the later settlers of the Great Plains as well, um, and it's. It's good for the prairie, and it seems um, it can be so destructive in some cases, and the wildfires are so dangerous that it seems um, counterintuitive to say that, that prairie fire is good. But in a controlled form, you know, in a form that's not going to hurt people or property, uh, it's healthy for the prairie to burn periodically, not necessarily every year, every not necessarily every acre every year, but uh, what fire does for the prairie, it burns off the old grass and allows for new growth uh, to, to come up. Uh, the grass comes in more nutritious. Um, there is, Prairie plants, many of them have adapted to periodic burning uh, because the burning's been going on for centuries. Uh, and so the grasses do better. There's more, more plant diversity uh, uh, among uh, parcels of prairie that are, are burned fairly frequently. Um, it controls the, it keeps, uh, especially in the tall grass region, it keeps trees and woody brush from intruding into the prairie ecosystem. In the tall grass region, uh, we have a lot of uh, more rain than on the plains further west. And so trees and brush can, can volunteer and, and come up. Uh, and that interferes with, you know, the composition of the prairie and, and the grasses and forbs uh, that, are, that are in the ecosystem. And so periodic fire kind of keeps those intruders under control uh, and keeps the prairie prairie, basically. If fire is so fundamental uh, to the prairie, you know, it's 
it's influential when it's there. It's influential when it's withheld because um, when it's withheld, you know, you get a, a definite change in the ecosystem. And these woody, woody intruders, you know, eat up groundwater as well. You know, you see tons of the cedar pop-up trees in the fields, and those are all sucking up groundwater. And so burning kind of eliminates that um, that wastefulness of, you know, unwanted trees uh, using this precious resource of, of water, particularly in the dry areas. Okay. Uh, question, what was the time span? I mean, because, again, I'm, I'm assuming after the Civil War, uh, is there a period of time where, let's say, in the 1920s or after World War One, where the state of Kansas or other parts of the prairie uh, prairie counties and regions kind of got a, a, a municipal grip on how to control this, or is there any records of that? Uh, there were attempts to, to they passed legislation, the states passed legislation uh, against prairie fires, which was difficult to do. Really stupid. Um, <laughs> really stupid. Yeah, yeah it, it, it kind of <laughs> was really stupid um, um, because a lot of the fires were started, you know, mostly by accident and carelessness. Uh, and so, you know, People, people would start these things, but the newspaper editors were constantly pressuring people, uh, urging caution, especially during times of drought. October was prairie fire month. I mean, you know, these massive fires would break out in October because the grass had been growing all summer. Summer's the wet season because you have um, thunderstorms bringing rain. Uh, and the grass would grow, the fuel load would grow, and then in September, you know, the water tap would get turned off and the grass would dry out. And so then a lot of fires, wildfires broke out in October. Uh, so there was a lot of caution urged, um, but yeah, legislation passed against them and didn't really help much. There was some effort to legislate fire breaks, um, people plowing fire breaks around uh, their vulnerable areas, around fence lines to protect crops, around houses and barns, um, even whole towns. There were cases where citizen community went out and, and plowed a fire, fire guard around an entire town uh, just in case a prairie fire would come along. They wanted to protect the town. So there were some efforts to legislate that as well, but mostly it was up to individuals to really, um, you know, try to stop the wildfires from breaking out. Julie, I don't know if this is a, a question that you can even answer, but I can remember as a kid growing up here in the Quad Cities, people talking about how the prairie fires um, – going back into prehistory had had um, quite a bit to do with the richness of the soil in Iowa and uh, Kansas and other places. Is, is that a myth or is there some truth to that? I have not heard anything about the connection to fires actually starting because of the soil. Um, the fires contribute to the richness of the soil because 
they're burning the, you know, they're burning the grass and the other fuel on top of the soil, and then that becomes fertilizer that becomes, you know, um, helps the soil improve, um, returns that matter to the soil, I guess you could say. Uh, but that's the only connection that I've found to soil. Hey, I got a question for you, Jay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, since your mom was from Oklahoma and she was born in the early part of the 20th century, did she ever talk about uh, fires in her youth? Because obviously they were still going on and she was in prairie country. Um I don't remember her ever talking about fires. Tornadoes were the big thing that that, that right, were right, were the, right. the big problem for them. Um, they would have been, I assume, what you would call short grass. Um, you know where they were at because I, you know the conversations I remember talking just about, and and I only went to visit once before the the big lake went in and drowned her uh, her homestead. Um, but you know it looked much more like. Nevada and Utah than it did like Iowa. Kansas. Yeah, yeah. It it just, it looked really Yeah, it 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 the really looked Yeah, go ahead. The challenge in the short grass when fire started there was lack of water. They didn't have water to fight fire because it was so dry out there. Um oh. <laughs> one one thing that he did uh like Oh, the, the big ranches in Texas and Oklahoma, the XIT um, and others that spanned, you know, several counties. Um, the cowboys, the ranch hands out there, uh, they didn't have water. So what they did have were cattle. And a method of fighting fire was they took a cow and killed it. And then they split the cow up the middle on its belly. And then they spread the carcass of the cow slimy side down <laughs> onto the ground, attach a rope to two ropes really to, and two horses to the cattle. And then two riders would drag the beef, the cattle carcass along the fire line and the moisture from the dead animal, plus the um, pressure, uh, the weight of the animal along the fire line would put the fire out. And it's called wow. the beef drag. Cool. Yeah. Wow. That's <laughs> really? It's called the beef drag. And, and there are, there's, there's post office murals from the WPA era of the 1930s where they, they've, uh, you know, painted the beef drag. It's a very common practice out in the, out in the Texas panhandle, the Oklahoma panhandle. Uh, you couldn't do that in the tall grass prairie because the, the fuel load is too high. The fire would be too high. Uh, it too, too hot. But in the short grass prairie, that's a way to put out fire. All right, well, hey, uh, Julie, yeah. if, if I could ask mm -hmm. a question. Um, you wrote this great book, incredibly interesting, and it's about a part of American history that, as we're all historians on the, on the team, uh, and don't have this kind of unusual perspective on particularly the Great Plains settlement um, uh, with Indians as well as the settlers. How do you, uh, what's your vision, how your book would be used uh, as an educational item uh, teaching American history? Uh, well, as far, I, I, my, my research specialty is Great Plains history. Um, and 
the Great Plains is known for the Dust Bowl. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, you know when people when people mention the Great Plains, that's what they think of. Um, and there's a lot there's been a lot of history written about the plowing of the plains and and agricultural history in the plains, and that's all very important. And the Dust Bowl, of course, you can't neglect the Dust Bowl. Um, but one of the things you know that I want to one of the points I want to make is that there are a lot of other factors with with regard to Great Plains history that have been relatively ignored by historians and certainly by, you know, even just people interested in history that want to read about the Great Plains. And there are these other, I'm an environmental historian, so that's kind of my specialty, but there are these other environmental factors that are also very influential besides the earth, besides plowing the earth. Uh, fire was I- incredibly important. It shaped the grassland um, and it was, you know, ignored. And it was part of culture on the Great Plains. These were fire people. They knew how to control fire. They knew how to fight fire. They tried to suppress fire. Um, it was very important to them. Uh, and then uh, other things like wind, which is kind of my current project. I'm working on a history of wind. Wind is also, you know, this other element, environmental force on the Great Plains that has been relatively ignored by historians and that people don't know a lot about. And so I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of wanting to broaden out um, Great Plains history and make people think about other things besides the Dust Bowl, <laughs> because Great Plains history is fascinating. Uh, it's so nuanced and um, it's it's great, and, and I want people to know more about um, the entirety of it rather than just a single segment of it. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guest for this 384th show, Dr. Julie Courtright, Associate Professor of History at Iowa State University, who's been talking to us about her book, Prairie Fire, A Great Plains History. The history buff for today's show was Rick Sweet. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM, and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it is being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.